Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you here this morning. I often say that it's good to see people at, at church when I shake their hand, but it really is good to see you this morning. I think that we're down to uh, well less than normal in number. I remind myself as we go along that it's not because I'm preaching, it's because everyone's on holidays. That's the, the key to it. You'll notice in the bulletin there that um, the title of the message this morning is Who Shall Dwell With the Lord? Uh, when I got the bulletin, I flicked through to tonight's message, and the title there is God's Dwelling Place. So they're very similar, and uh, I was preparing a while ago, and I haven't colluded with Tim, and uh, I was a bit surprised on Wednesday evening as well when Sam spoke, and, and he said a lot about, uh, very eloquently I might add, about um, being humble and uh, drawing close to the Lord. And of course, you can't dwell with the Lord without being humble. So there'll be a fair bit of overlap this morning as well with what Sam said on Wednesday night. It was a great blessing and encouragement. I wonder if I was to ask you uh, if you could pick just three things that you felt were incredibly valuable in your life, three things that really were the essence of life to you. I wonder what you'd come up with. I'm sure relationships would feature heavily. You'd probably say family. Uh, more specifically, your spouse, for those of us who are married. Uh, if you're not married, you'd probably like to be one day uh, to find the one that God has, uh, has picked to complement you. If you are married, you probably want to remain married and, and uh, as the word says, to be delighted with the wife of your youth. I look forward one day to, uh, to driving along uh, in a car or a ute or something with a bench seat and having my arm around Emily when we're old and grey or when I'm older and greyer. Uh, if they haven't outlawed that sort of thing, I look forward to it. We can probably all um, appreciate good relationships with our parents and with our children as well. Um, we like to, to think of our children as, as growing in uh, their love for us, growing in wisdom and even excelling us at the things we're good at and uh, not picking up the bad traits that we have. But I'm sure that... Um, all of us would value relationships with our family extremely highly. Those relationships all function better when we're people of integrity, when we're sober, honest and ethical. Another essential, of course, of life is physical health. Without some physical health, we can't experience the joy of picking up grandchildren, uh, catching kids as they jump without any fear off the back of a vehicle or out of the swing. They seem to think my arms are twice as long as they are sometimes. So we'd all need some health. And another thing that we'd need, which we rarely mention in church very much about, is money. Uh, if we're going to make special occasions special, uh, we need some, some money to do that as well. And these are the sorts of things that, that I think most people would agree with, that we, we need to, uh, to have a, a successful or joyful life. Of course, all relationships begin and function properly when we're in relationship with our Creator. And your presence alone here this morning tells me that you have, at the very least, a token desire to know the Lord and to uh, recognise that life, a life truly lived is indeed a life of faith. Jesus said that the thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy, but I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. True life is only found in close fellowship with God. Let's see how these things that I've mentioned measure up against the list of things in this psalm here in Psalm 15. And let's, uh, 
let's see what's essential and what's superfluous to not being moved. You'll notice at the end of verse 5 there, it says that he that doeth these things shall never be moved. Let's pray together this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word and that it changes not as you do not. And Father, we need your blessing this morning, the blessing of your presence. And Lord, we desire to be in fellowship with you moment by moment. And so we pray, Father, that that would, uh, would happen now, that we'd be in fellowship with you. you. You'd reveal your truth to us as we look at your word this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. So Psalm 15 is obviously part of the Old Testament and sometimes when I talk to people they, uh, they object a little bit to the Old Testament or they, they kind of, they think it's, it's okay but it's not as relevant as the New Testament to us. They think that the Old Testament is something that's a little bit awkward to handle in places and they're more comfortable keeping it at arm's length. Um, perhaps it's really focused on the Jews or... Um, you know, maybe God's recorded it for posterity and for some kind of a factual basis, but day to day, it's not that easily understood or applied to our lives. But the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. We know that God changes not. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today and forever. What we find in the Old Testament is the foundations for what we're more familiar with in the New Testament. Through Christ, all Christians share in the blessings promised to Abraham, uh, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So if you're here this morning for Sunday school and last Sunday morning, you'll, you'll know that Tony did a very succinct uh, message there on that life of faith um, versus uh, the law and the process involved there. So I won't go over a lot of that, but... Uh, we know that blessings always come by faith. The blessings that God has for us are found only if we live by faith. In any choice or decision in our lives, it must be made by faith. Often when we face difficult decisions, and I've been talking to, uh, to a couple of people this week, uh, we face big decisions, life-changing ones. If we're going to step out by faith, those decisions are faced with some trepidation, even fear. It's not until we make the decision that that fear goes away or that pressure, often the pressure builds. The devil doesn't want us to stand for the Lord. He doesn't want us to step out in faith. And sometimes it's a real uh, challenge to leave behind the identity that we held of ourselves, our self-image. To step out in faith is a risk and it's only after we obey and choose to honour God that we find the blessing of peace that comes. I forget who said it, but there are three stages in any great work for God, the impossible, the improbable and the done. Faith is the only means of salvation just as it is the only means of fellowship with God. <clears throat> Excuse me. This short but excellent psalm shows us the way to heaven and to convince us that if we will be happy, we must be holy and honest. I'm sure you'll agree that the only way you and I are going to be holy and honest is a miracle from God. It's got to be by divine intervention and miracles come only by faith. Let's have a quick look at Psalm 15 again. If you'll turn with me there, the Lord, who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell 
in thy holy hill. He that walketh uprightly and worketh righteousness and speaketh the truth in his heart. He that backbiteth not with his tongue, nor doeth evil to his neighbour, nor taketh up a reproach against his neighbour, in whose eyes a vile person is condemned. But he honoureth them that fear the Lord. He that sweareth to his own hurt, and changeth not. He that putteth not out his money to usury, nor taketh reward against the innocent. He that doeth these things shall never be moved. What a promise. I'm keen to understand a bit more about that and never be moved. When I started looking at this psalm, your Bible probably like mine has just under the heading there a Psalm 15, a Psalm of David. I was keen to understand a bit more about David. I really uh, I like him. He's a real person. He's not uh, a figment of someone's imagination. He's not what a cartoonist has put together. He's not a product of Hollywood. He's not the subject of myth or legend. He's a genuine Christian with lofty aspirations, sinful failures and uh, seemingly everything in between. And what's more is that he's presented to us without embellishment. God has revealed him to us in total honesty, really frankly. It's like God gives us a look into his very heart. God, of course, sees the heart of man and he reveals the heart of David to us. And so I thought this morning we'd step back just before we have a look at these five verses and just have a little bit of a look at David and see who the human author was that God chose to use here. I'm banking on the fact that you know a lot about David already, so we'll just have a, a very quick uh, overview of some of the things of his life. David was the son of Jesse. Uh, in 1 Samuel 16, we're going to look at a few verses there. Uh, David was the son of Jesse, the anointed by Samuel to be king of Israel. 1 Samuel 16 and 13. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brethren, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. David was singled out by the man of God from within his family. Amongst his brothers he was chosen and anointed. In fact, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. He was the youngest of eight, the eighth son, but God chose him to be first. He was highly favoured by the king. You'll see in verse 21 and 22 that King Saul himself said that David had, had, sorry, had found favour in his sight and the king said that he loved him greatly. Verse 23 of 1 Samuel 16 says that David was so skilled in music that he could drive evil spirits away with a harp. Truly, David had the blessing of the living God on his life. In 1 Samuel 18 and 3, we see that David was greatly blessed in his relationship with Jonathan. I've had some good friends throughout my life, but usually lost all of them uh, as I've travelled. I've moved my entire life, and, uh, and most of you don't know that. We've been here for a few years now, but uh, constantly moving. And before the WWW, it was easy to lose contact with people. So uh, this is, a, is something very special to have a friend like Jonathan who loved David, the word says, as his own soul. David was placed in charge of the men of war and he behaved himself wisely in all his ways and the Lord was with him. The scriptures record that he was accepted by all the people. That's no small thing, is it? 
today we hear the, the saying, you know, you know the saying, um, uh, you can fool some of the people some of the time. But God's ways are unlike the world's ways. David wasn't trying to fool people. God's favour was on him. And God's uh, chosen him to have favour with all the people. When the Lord is with a man, there's no boundary to what the Lord will do. The Lord was with David. All the people accepted, accepted him. So what experience did he have that qualifies him in a human sense to, to author this psalm here? Well, David had adversity. We know that Saul's heart was fickle and was turned against David. He even plotted to destroy David. He gave his daughter to David, but it was, uh, it was a treacherous thing. He wanted David to go and fight what Saul described as the Lord's battles against the Philistines. His plan was to have David killed and leave him smelling like roses. Can you imagine that situation, having the king after your very life? David's qualified to speak about the sustaining power and comfort of God. In 1 Samuel 19 and 8, there was war again, and David went out and fought with the Philistines and slew them with a great slaughter, and they fled from him. But Saul was more determined than ever. And you know the record of how David played the harp again, but at this particular time, Saul had the javelin in his hand and he wanted to skewer David to the wall. He did his best, but David escaped. David continued to escape Saul's treacherous plans, his attacks on his life, but he didn't escape the sins that so easily entangle a man. You know the accounts of his sin with adultery, murder, the untimely death of his son at just seven days old. The grief of his sin devastated so many, Bathsheba, Uriah, Absalom, to name just a few. None of our sin affects just one of us either. In 1 Samuel 30 and 6, we see that David experienced isolation to a degree that many of us never will. It says there that he was greatly distressed for the people spake of stoning him because the soul of all the people was grieved every man for his sons and for his daughters. But David encouraged himself in the Lord. Because David had provoked the Amalekites, left Ziklag without any defences, no fortification, the people held him completely responsible for their current situation. Within their despair, he was such a dis disappointment. Sorry. Within his... Within their despair was such a disappointment that they grew outrageous and threatened the life of him on whom under God they had the greatest dependence. Does that make sense, the wordy sentence? They were outraged with David and wanted to stone him and yet he was the one God had appointed to give them direction. It was exactly the same with Moses, wasn't it? You remember when Moses led the people out of Egypt and they went down to that point. They came down to a point where they were stuck with the wilderness, Pharaoh's army descending upon them, and the Red Sea in front of them, nowhere to go. The people were the same. They held the leader solely responsible for their current condition. And we're prone to do as well, do the same as well in, in times of trouble to fly into a rage against those that we blame for the circumstance. 
overlooking the hand of God, having no regard for God's divine providence. When Moses led the people there, he followed the instructions perfectly. He took the people right where God had told him to take them. And it's easy for us looking back to, to know the end of that miracle. But we're prone to do the same thing. If we consider the divine intervention of God's hand in our circumstances, it will silence our outbursts and make us patient. But at this point, the despair brought a grievous burden on the man who is described as after God's own heart. Saul had driven him from his country. The Philistines had driven him from their camp. The Amalekites had plundered his city. His wives were taken prisoners. And now, to complete his woe, his own familiar friends, the ones that he had sheltered and fed, the ones he trusted, instead of sympathising with him and offering him any relief, they lifted up their voices against him and threatened to stone him. And great faith must expect such great tests. It's notable that David was reduced in this extreme condition just before his ascension to the throne. At this very time, perhaps, the cord was struck in David's heart, which opened the door to his advancement. Just like when he was looking after the sheep, doing a humble job with a humble heart, and the king, the king, called for him. Come to the palace and bring your harp. It was God who plucked him out of obscurity at that point, and it was God who would lift him up now. I'd just like to read a few verses for you about, about humility and being humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray, and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. But he giveth more grace, wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace to the humble. And the last one in Proverbs 3, Surely he scorneth the scorners, but he giveth grace unto the lowly. So I just want to say to you this morning that things are sometimes at the worst in the church and with the people of God in our lives just before they begin to mend. And we see this example with David here. The last thing I want to look at with David's life here is that David had solace. His consolation was his very dependence on God. Isn't that an amazing statement that David encouraged himself in the Lord? I believe that grace in this distress was found by the action of again seeking the presence of the Almighty. The familiarity of the process of communing with God was a comfort because he knew that God would sustain him. Psalm 42.11 Why art thou cast down, O my soul? And why art thou disquieted within me? Hope thou in God... For I shall yet praise him who is the health of my countenance and my God. So we see that David encouraged himself in the Lord. He was not uneasy in his spirit. You imagine the turmoil with the, the people, the friends, wanting to stone him. 
He wasn't jumpy, nervous and hyperactive. He was calm. Yes, he was a man of war. That's the way God is described as well in Deuteronomy, a God of war. But he wasn't consumed with rage or overcome with a violent nature. He had control over himself. He had his emotions under subjection. His state of mind was fortified. His men fretted at their loss. The soul of the people was bitter. Their own discontent and impatience added to the affliction and misery which made their case doubly difficult to deal with, doubly grievous. But David bore it well, even though he had more reason than any to lament. His family had been carried away as well. What the people did was they gave voice to their ignorance of God's providence, his divine nature and working in their lives. David focused on his work and by encouraging himself in God, he kept his spirit calm and steady. You see, it was David's practice to draw close to the Lord and I believe he had comfort in the very process itself. He'd not taken the easy road previously, but time and time again he'd taken that step of faith. He trusted in God and he had a protocol in his place, in, in place in his life for challenges such as this. Psalm 56, 3 and 4 says, What time I am afraid I will trust in thee. In God I will praise his word. In God I have put my trust. I will not fear what flesh can do unto me. So when David was at his wit's end, he was not at his faith's end. So I think that in that quick overview, we see that David is qualified in a human sense to speak of a person who will not be moved. As we read in Psalm 15, he experienced the blessings of God in victory, the mercy of God in failures, and the faithfulness of God in restoration. So one of the, the blanks you've got there is um, on Psalm 15, the first blank there, verse 1, is dwelling with God. The tabernacle of the Lord uh, mentioned here is, um, is speaking of God's holiness and a meeting place between God and his people. Exodus 25 is where the instructions for the tabernacle are given. There are actually uh, six chapters where God describes how he wants the tabernacle made. God's concerned with preserving holiness. So it not only symbolizes the tabernacle of, uh, does not only symbolize the presence of God with his people, but it shows how a sinful man can come into and live in the presence of a holy God. And we all have the same access to God in this place this morning. I've said before, we all have the same ability to draw close to God. God's available to you and to me the same as he is to pastor and uh, to the church leadership and to um, Glenn Weeks, anyone that we might see as, uh, as being further down the road and having a greater faith than ours, God's available to us just as he is to them. He's made a way that we can dwell with him. It says there in verse 1, Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? It's a reference to the Lord's people coming home. It alludes to Mount Zion where Solomon would build the temple. And through this phrase, we see a picture of the church triumphant. 
It's a dwelling place of the glorified saints, the eternal home of those who are the Lord's own. The scriptures are a faithful guide for those of us who would know the way. And that's what we'll see in the next four verses, the way for us to draw close to the Lord. Jeremiah 29.11 says, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. The Lord has a plan for us to go to heaven. The Lord has a plan for us to reap what we sow, to have an expected end, to reap the harvest. It's the devil who sneaks into your life to steal and destroy. It's the deceiver, the father of lies, who wants to take away the crop that you've sown to cause compromise. You know, compromise is so subtle that we miss the devil's influence in our lives when we're tempted to compromise. He takes our desires, the Lord's plans for us, and he destroys them if we will compromise. It's the Lord's plan that we dwell with him. But the devil does all he can to derail that plan. The Lord says, I love them that love me, and those that seek me early shall find me. So with the scriptures we have our course established. In verse 2 it talks of walking uprightly, having the, the, the blank there is truth, having the truth permeate our lives. You see in verse 2 it describes the person that walks uprightly and worketh righteousness. Walking uprightly is to do what's right all the time. When we're alone, when we think that no one's watching, we, we know that the Lord brings all things to the light. Nothing done in the darkness is hidden, but all things are made manifest with the Lord. Nothing is secret. He that worketh righteousness describes someone who lives within the boundaries of the law. A person who has experienced salvation is transplanted. They are moved from a position of separation into a right standing before God. Psalm 42 tells us about that, as does the, the hymn that we're very familiar with. He brought me up also out of an horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon the rock, and established my goings. The one who works righteousness walks in all the ordinances and commandments of the Lord, and takes care to give all people their due. He's just with God and with man. He speaketh the truth in his heart. This describes someone that's honest and just in all his dealings, faithful and fair to all. And because he speaks the truth in his heart, when he speaks to God, his conversations with God are not compromised by uncertainty or doubt. He doesn't have to restrain himself or confine his emotions or focus on any kind of etiquette or diplomacy. Because he's truthful in his heart, he can deal directly with God without reservation, like a little child. You know, a little child runs up to you and, and they, they blurt out their thoughts. There's not much filter there. They can do that because they have a purity. And we can do that with God if we have truth in our heart. We can, uh, that purity, that truth denies any guile, any hold or, or any leverage of wickedness in us. 
sometimes I'll be working away at something in the house and, and one of the kids who remain nameless will come running up and say, that looks great, Dad. And I'll say, yeah, yeah it's all right, isn't it? Yeah. And then they'll come back a few minutes later, can I get you anything, Dad? Uh, no, I'm good, thank you, I'm right. And then a little bit later they'll come back, can we take the dogs to the park or can I have a minty? You know, the, the truth comes out later. <laughs> and uh, I think that the Lord's very wise when he says we can be like a little child when we come to him. Max isn't here. Max, um, Max is uh, sort of taking another leap from that. He just comes up and says, Dad, can I make you a cup of tea? I'll have a minty if I make you a cup of tea, right? <laughs> we all voted yesterday and we all know that the politicians um, don't often work from that basis of truth. Almost everything they say is, uh, is tainted, uh, it seems, with some sort of injustice or, uh, or false representation. But the man who speaketh or the person who speaketh the truth in his heart, he's able to talk with God and his confessions, his petitions, his promises. They're all truth. can deal open and honestly with God. It's a beautiful picture here of fellowship between God the Father and the crowning glory of his creation, mankind. Verse 3, he's good to his neighbour. The two blanks there, he's good to his neighbour. It relates to the, the second greatest commandment of all, to love thy neighbour as thyself. You'll notice the first thing mentioned is the matter of the tongue. If any man bridles not his tongue, his religion is vain. The one described here is conscious that a good name is to be desired above great riches and is therefore very careful not to tarnish the good name or reputation of his neighbour. That means that he neither starts nor receives a rumour. He gives no credence to anything ill that's said of his neighbour. And in fact, he drives away a backbiting tongue with an angry countenance. If his neighbour's bad character is reported to him or an unedifying story be told, he'll disprove it if he can. And if not, it will die with him. He won't perpetuate that rumour. And his charity will cover a multitude of sins. A pastor I knew uh, once told me that he likes to see the good in everyone. And I think he's trying to practice this principle. He does no evil to his neighbour at all. Uh, by sins of commission, omission, willingly or, or accidentally, he doesn't do anything to offend or grieve his spirit. Nothing to injure or harm or adversely affect his interests. Not within his family or other relations not at work or in the community at large. Instead, he does unto his neighbour what he would have done unto him. Even if it means he's at a disadvantage or takes financial loss, he will not take action against his neighbour. No action against him, not in thought, word or deed. Verse 4 says that uh, a vile person is contemned. Condemned, but he honoureth them that fear the Lord, he that sweareth to his own hurt and changeth not. So I think this speaks to making uh, God's priorities his own. Making God's priorities his own. He doesn't think better of a, a man's wickedness because of his position or fame. So what I mean is that he, the person here accurately assesses the people around him. Wicked people are vile. Their actions are vile. He has discernment and sees the wicked for
for what they are, worthless and good for nothing. That's what the word teaches. Teaches that if we will be wicked, we are worthless and good for nothing. They're as dross, as chaff, like the the salt that has lost its savour. The word teaches us that to be wicked uh, is to be uh, vile in our choices, Jeremiah 2.13, and uh, vile in practice, Isaiah 32.6. Wise men condemn the wicked, not denying them the honour and respect that they deserve as men, possibly even men in authority or of notoriety or of some power, but they condemn the wicked where they disagree with God. A wise man knows that though a man gain the whole world and lose his own soul, he still is condemned. Conversely, he honours them that fear the Lord. More than wealth or wit or a great name among men, the favour of God is the highest honour. And so he esteems those people very highly in love. He's a true friend to all those that fear the Lord. He desires their friendship and conversation and has an interest in their prayers. He's glad for an opportunity to show them respect or do them good. He pleads their cause. We'd say that he has their back. He rejoices when they prosper, grieves when they're troubled. And by this standard, we could assess ourselves. What rules do we use in judging others? I don't think Emily's mum would mind me sharing this, but... Uh, Quite a while ago, she tried to persuade me that she didn't judge anyone. And uh, it wasn't 10 minutes later, we were talking about someone else and she she made a comment and it was based pretty much on what she had seen, the visual picture she had of someone else. And it wasn't bad, but she immediately caught herself and said, oh, I do judge people. And we do. And uh, and we're commanded to. So what standards do we use? Do we use uh, the ones here in uh, verse 4? The person described in verse 4 is the one that always prefers a good conscience before any kind of personal advantage. As I mentioned before, the devil's plan, his scheme is to get us to compromise on tiny details. Satan knows that he can start a downward spiral when he sneaks up on us and we don't realise that there's an issue. Compromise is a subtle and brutal weapon of our adversary. We ought to attend to the minute details and, like Job, eschew or hate evil. The end of the verse here speaks of an oath being a sacred thing and we do well to be warned about anything that would cause us to compromise our integrity. Tony mentioned a bit about... Um, wasn't oaths exactly this morning, was it, Tony? Vows. Vows, thank you. <laughs> the old age kicking in. When I was a fair bit younger... I uh, I spent a bit of time pilot training and one of the things that you learn when you learn to fly is you learn how to crash. You'll um, you'll notice this morning that I have some some slip-on shoes on here and uh, I noticed when I looked around that most of the guys have laces. You wouldn't make much of a a light aircraft pilot. You have to have a slip-on or slip-off shoe so that when you go to crash you can stick the shoe in the door and uh, and it's held there by the, the airflow, and that way when you crash and the fuselage is crumpled, you can still open the door to get out. Um, one of the other things that you learn to do is recover from dangerous situations. A 152, a tiny little plane, if you put it into a tailspin, it'll do four revolutions without much of a drama. 
In fact, at four revolutions, you can let go of all the controls and the plane will right itself. It'll still be heading towards the ground, but it'll be flying sensibly again and no drama to pull back. And After four revolutions, it gets remarkably more difficult. Just like when the devil sneaks up on us, we see things as, ah, it's not a big deal and something smells a bit off, but it's only small and we compromise. It's the same thing in learning to fly. There are many chief flying instructors who are concerned about doing tail spins, doing spins in a 152. After four revolutions, it comes out no dramas. But after that, it gets kind of set in that, that situation, in that momentum. And contrary to just doing nothing and having it right itself, you have to do an awful lot. You have to hit full power, you have to be fighting with the controls and try and get it back out. And there's actually a point where it will not recover. So what starts off as being something relatively entertaining, a bit of fun, you end up fatal. Of course, you have the 12-month the and 110-hour rudder inspection as well. When you're in a, in a spin like that, the rudder's fully across. And if the rudder horn gets past the, the block, the, um, the, the bolt, that is the stop, it can jam in there and it'll go one way onto full rudder and that's it. It won't come back. At that point, there's no recovery. Again, these are, these are, uh, to me, this is an example of something that starts easily and is relatively uh, comfortable, but the consequences are enormous. And if we get familiar with some small compromises, the devil, as I say, uses that as a subtle and brutal weapon to bring us undone as well. Verse 5, the last one there, says that he putteth not out his money to usury, nor taketh reward against the innocent. So uh, on your blank there, it's uh, that, that uh, handles money according to the instructions God has given. There's an awful lot of instruction in Scripture about money, about finances. So the person described here is one that will not increase his wealth by any unjust practices, not by excitation, not by theft, not by bribery. He won't lend his money out at exorbitant rates to those with less options. He won't invest in the stock market, for example, in, uh, in companies that he, he doesn't know what they do. He wants to know background. He wants to know what their principles are before he takes the, the money that God's given him his stewardship of and then puts in that place. And also his aim, it, it speaks here, I think, of someone whose aim is not to live at ease without any labour. We know that the Lord set the example for us, as uh, Tony spoke this morning, that the things mentioned um, before the Mosaic Covenant and uh, the early scriptures in the Old Testament uh, are current before and after that Mosaic Covenant. And so the example God has set for us with six days of work. Work's not a curse. Work was pre the curse. The way we handle money often tells the world around us all that they need to know about us. The scriptures are filled with instructions. The wicked borroweth and payeth not again, but the righteous showeth mercy and giveth. Psalm 37, 21. In Deuteronomy 28, 12 and 13, we have God's specific instructions there in other places about debt. And, uh, and he makes it clear that debt's a judgment of God. So as his people, we're to, to know and to declare what God says are his ways. 
And Psalm 9.11 says, Sing praises to the Lord which dwelleth in Zion. Declare among the people his doings. A citizen of Zion will freely lend to the poor according to his ability. He's like Zion Hill itself which cannot be moved but abides forever. Every true living member of the church, like the church itself, is built upon a rock which the gates of hell cannot prevail against. He that doeth these things shall not be moved. The grace of God shall always be sufficient for this person to preserve him safe and blameless to the heavenly kingdom. Temptations shall not overcome him. Troubles shall not overwhelm him. Nothing shall rob him of his present peace or future bliss. In learning this psalm, we must teach and admonish ourselves and one another the characteristics of the citizen of Zion, that we may never be moved from God's tabernacle on earth and may arrive at last at the holy hill where we shall forever be out of the reach of temptation and danger. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for uh, the many instructions that you give to us. Uh, Lord, we pray that uh, there'd be something there that you can use this morning in what I've said, that you would intervene divinely and, Lord, have something there uh, that you can uh, speak to uh, encourage the hearts of each one here this morning, that we would uh, devote ourselves to you and we would experience uh, the firm foundation that you have for us that we can... Um, uh, understand what it really means to never be moved. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.